On today's episode, we are back with a Q&A answering some questions all about hair loss, creatine, and how much protein our kids need each and every day. So if you guys have any questions that you would like to ask us, feel free to shoot those over to info at fitmomlife.com and we can be sure to cover those in one of the upcoming episodes. You hear all the bull about diet and exercise. Carbs are evil. Do more cardio. Never eat bread or cookies again. Just do a juice cleanse. We get it. We fell for all of the BS too. It's time to go right to the source with the truth about how to live a healthy, sustainable lifestyle. I am Liz. And I'm Becca. We are your nutrition educators and this is The Food Code. Welcome back to The Food Code, everyone. We are doing a Q&A today, which we have called FAQ so many times in the past 20 minutes. You have. <laughs> Kept saying FAQ. It's kind of similar, frequently asked questions, questions that we get often. Um, but we love doing Q&As. You know, I think that it, a lot of people have questions that maybe could be expanded to a full podcast, but they're a little bit easier to answer in short form. Um, and go with our experience and our knowledge and some research. Um, so... One of these questions is how much protein do kids need per day? So obviously Liz and I are both parents. We have a lot of moms that listen to the podcast. Um, and, you know, we're, we need to talk first about children's nutrition. Um, and I am not perfect. Again, if you need some great parenting advice, might not be the person to, you know, go to. But I, I've, I struggle with this as well. And essentially understanding that children do not need different nutrition per se than you do. They, you know, it, they eat far more sugar than adults do, I would say. They eat far less vegetables and fruit. Eh, maybe not fruit, but like vegetables and good protein sources than most adults do. Because we allow children and their tastes and their desire for f certain foods become very skewed early on in life and we it's easier right you know that's the big thing well it's just easier to throw in some chicken nuggets and a macaroni and cheese instant mac in the microwave and not have them scream and kick and you know <laughs> yeah and i think too it's also our society like if you go out to eat you're always given a kid's menu okay in one way it's cheaper and they're smaller portions but in another way you look at it it's basically all fried foods and garbage foods it's grilled cheese, pizza, chicken nuggets, like you said, French fries, those types of things. Sometimes if you're lucky, you can get an option for a fruit bowl or whatever. Um, and, you know, these are not great foods for our children. And I am a strong believer that your kids will adapt to what you give them. I definitely think that, you know, some kids are harder than others because they're picky. Vegetables have been very hard for us. We did great for a while. And now... He doesn't want to eat any of the vegetables that he used to love. And so it's also trying to find different things to incorporate them, different ways to incorporate them or different products, which is why I love Thrive because they have so many different things, you know, in the frozen section or different types of snacks that I can get that are better than other things. But, you know, we also have <laughs> this kind of uh, industry out there that is all, let's think like from the start of your day, it's juice, it's breakfast cereals, it's massive amounts of sugar, donuts, you know, muffin packs, whatever. Ho-hos and Twinkies, right? And then they get to school and their school lunch for most kids, I think is, again, a lot of the things that you're seeing on the kid's menu. And so these kids don't have good quality of food. And so what we're trying to do is 
you know, give the best quality that we can and diversify as much as we can. And, you know, I will say we were not great about this for a while, but we have shifted the last few weeks to making Marcus have what we have. Like we made Nashville hot chicken this week. I left some chicken tenders that were done in the air fryer for him without the sauce, obviously, because it's too spicy for him, but he likes it with ketchup, you know, having as many cucumbers as he wants from the garden or just trying to incorporate these things that he will eat um, because they need nutrients. And that's a big thing. And so if we can start young with this, I think that's really important. Uh, but number two is if you do have a picky eater, we've talked about this on other podcasts, like look at what might be driving you know that uh, because it can be other neurological things going on, food sensitivities, like reactions to things. Um, and then just try to make it fun. This is one thing that I say to a lot of our moms is speak positively about this. Talk about how good you feel after meals. Uh, I talk about the importance of protein before carbohydrates with Marcus every morning. Um, we were just recently at my brother's house. They had all the things, all the things that the kids could want. Donuts, cupcakes, uh, just all the things. And I said, Marcus, we're going to have yogurt or you know eggs and fruit before, and then you can have some donut. By the time he finishes eggs and his berries, he didn't want any of the donut. I was like, awesome. Well, the other ones are bouncing off the walls because all they've had is a donut and no other protein source. And so it is very important even for their blood sugar levels. And so we just wanted to kind of cover that uh, before we kind of talk about the amount of protein that they need because we get it. It's hard. But at the end of the day, there's a lot that we can do to get, you know, a little bit more diversity in, try to make it fun, try to speak about it positively. Yeah, absolutely. Like I think of two days ago when I, so Carson likes the premier protein shakes, which I'm like, you know what, honestly, it's to me, it's better than like chocolate milk or, you know, what he normally wants in the morning, which is like mini muffins. Um, we don't buy those anymore. And the other day he went downstairs to get a chocolate shake, like the premier protein shakes for breakfast and I follow him downstairs and he turns around and he's holding something behind his back. And I was like, Carson, what do you have? And he was like, I want chocolate muffins. Cause we had for like, I don't know, three months ago, probably like leftover mini muffins in the pantry. They were hard. Like they were so stale. And so I had to take, I'm like, Carson, we can't just have sugar in the morning. Like these are full of sugar. And obviously him hiding it from me, he knows like, this isn't what mom thinks I should have in the morning. And I don't, you know, personally, that's my parenting style. I don't care if my kid's afraid of me in some extent. I think that they should fear me in some extent because you know, you're the authority as a parent, in my opinion, but that's just my opinion. So in terms of protein to support growth and development for children, the current daily recommended intake for dietary protein indicates that children four to 13 years requires 0.95 grams per kilogram and ages 14 to 18 years require 0.85 grams per kilogram. So based on this is kind of like the classic nitrogen balance technique per se. Um, so results from studies designed with newer methods though, because that's kind of an old school method using stable isotope amino acid suggests that RDA should actually be closer to 1.55 grams per kilogram for children six to 10 years. So definitely a little bit higher. Um, and if you're more active, you know, the kids are playing sports, stuff like that, you're also going to have an increase in dietary protein recommendations for the, for the child. And there's currently kind of a paucity of lit literature in minimally and highly active children um, reporting potential differences in their true protein requirements to ensure growth occurs, occurs normally. So research that uses kind of the combination of these two methods <clears throat> may be one, you know, viable means to determining differences in these dietary needs in children with different activity levels. But in essence, 
what this boils down to is your kid probably is going to need a what I would consider around like one gram per pound of body weight or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is the tough part. There's not a ton of research out there, right? Because again, we're talking about children. I will drop the study that I found on this in the show notes. Um, we're always hesitant to speak about, you know, any recommendations. I would say the baseline is try to get your kids eating protein, you know, good quality protein, grass fed, whole, uh, full fat, organic dairy, if you can, um, especially if you're doing like yogurts and things like that, try to reduce their sugar consumption as much as you possibly can. Um, if they're going to have it again, try to have it after they have a protein source. I let Marcus eat our protein bars, freaking $2 and 50 cents every time he eats a bar. Um, but I let him eat our protein bars. He is also taking the Opti kids from first form, which has a bunch of good stuff in there. It kind of tastes like chocolate milk. Um, you know, he does cheese, he does steak with us. He does chicken. He does a lot of, uh, fish. He actually likes shrimp and salmon a lot. So we'll make him like salmon patties or turkey patties. Um, you know, my mother-in-law does a really great job, uh, also of preparing foods for him, you know, in that way. And, and what we have just found is there's a bit of complaining in the beginning. Like the other night when I made the, you know, air fryer, uh, Nashville chicken, he sat there and he looked at it. He's like, this is not my chicken nuggets. You know, I was like, well, it's because you're eating what mommy and daddy eat. You're a big boy. Now we're trying to, again, speak of this positively. Same thing. When we do steak, we cut it into small pieces, burgers. If you want some cheese on it, great. But you know, catch up little things like that. And then everything too, in terms of sides. So if we are doing chicken nuggets, I'm buying the gluten-free ones. Um, you know, they're a little bit better. We'll buy some stuff from, you know, Thrive. And then we also have found some potatoes that don't have all the oils and all the crap in them. And so little stuff like that. You know, I just think start swapping things out slowly. We don't have cereal in our house. He's asked me for Cheerios at the store. He somehow knows about McDonald's. He's never eaten fast food once in his life. You know, and at the end of the day, they see a lot of these things and they're influenced by a lot of these things because the marketing is there. Mm-hmm. You know, we're at, uh, I think I've shared this before, but you know, I know Becca struggles with this too. You take them to the grocery store with you and they see Paw Patrol on something and they want that. Well, that's filled yeah. with sugar. We can't have the Paw Patrol. We need to get, you know, either the Siggies or, you know, something else that's, you know, better. But at the end of the day, I think for, you know, the way that we approach it, I'm not counting the amount of protein that he's getting. I'm trying mm-hmm. to have it every main meal and, you know, as part of as many snacks as I possibly can. And then I'm always just reminding him, yes, we can have ice cream. Yes, we can have, you know, these Mm -hmm. cookies or whatever it is in moderation. And after we've had some sort of good protein or at least some fiber. Yes. It's so hard with kids, guys. I get it. My child's in this phase where he growls at me now, where he does like a raptor, like, Mm -hmm. you know, Jurassic Park raptor type noise towards me. It's great. We're, we're just in a weird phase. Like we're in the, I want to put my feet up on the table. I want to stand up on the table. I want to make all these strange noises. And then as I was telling you before we started recording, why the question why has come up. I don't even know. Hundreds of times. I become really good at explaining random concepts. Like Carson asked me what better meant the other day. And I was like, Ooh, how do I explain this without using the word better? Like it was it, it was he was asking about his knee because he scraped his knee last year last week and he talks every morning mom look at my knee it's getting better and then he explained he asked what better meant and i was like ah i don't even know how to explain this right now it's improving it's yeah healing. that's what i was trying to i, I used it, it's you know it's different and it's a good way type thing so anyways okay Next up, guys, someone asked about creatine. So creatine is a supplement, obviously. And fun fact, creatine is actually the most researched and well-documented supplement in the bodybuilding 
and, you know, strength fitness realm. So there is a lot of information and it is all pretty positive information. Um, so creatine, a lot of people worry about weight gain and they think creatine being like, oh, you know, roided out bodybuilders take creatine. No, creatine has so many other benefits than just help support muscle development. So if you do not take more than like the normal dosing levels too, like that five grams a day is pretty much the normal dosing level. You don't need to cycle creatine. There's a lot of belief around having to go on and off of it. You don't need to cycle creatine. You can stay on it chronically. Um, the weight gain tends to be driven when you're doing more like massing doses of 10 to 15 plus grams a day. Um, and it's essentially because additional water is pulled into the muscle cells. Um, and so people think you're gaining weight when in reality your body's just storing more water for development and recovery. Um, there's a ton of benefits to creatine beyond muscle development and muscle maintenance. So I've noticed a lot of benefit in terms of recovery mm -hmm. for me personally, just with incorporating creatine, especially through 75 hard. Yep. Um, but there's other things uh, in terms of reducing symptoms of menopause. So hello, hot flashes, fatigue, waking up in the middle of the night, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, it can prevent muscle loss over time. Again, also aids in menopause symptoms yep. as you, you know, age and we're losing muscle mass, improves your insulin sensitivity and glucose handling. We talk a lot about blood sugar and the importance of keeping stable blood sugar levels and supporting, uh, you know, insulin sensitivity increases brain activity and reduces Alzheimer's development. So we've talked again on various podcasts about how your diet impacts your brain inflammation, neurotransmitter production, especially with your gut. Um, and that also impacts, um, you know, your memory, long-term memory. And so everything that you can be doing to maintain memory as long as you can, I would be doing. So I definitely would be taking mm -hmm. this in addition to working on your guts, um, balancing your hormones and supporting your mood, boosting your immune system, and then increasing the anti-tumor T cell activity. So it is very, very safe. As Becca mentioned, it is very well researched. We've got some, um, you know, research articles that we'll drop here in the show notes. If you would like to, you know, take this again, five grams per day is the normal dosing for general population. And you can take it any time of the day. You don't have to take it at a specific time, which is nice. And we both use uh, the first form brand of creatine. Yep. All right. Hair loss. One of our listeners, and I would, I would say this is becoming more and more something that I hear from a lot of people that they're dealing with hair loss. They're dealing with like bald spots. They're dealing with very like thinning, noticeably thinning hair. Um, and so we want to go over kind of the main reasons that hair loss tends to happen because it's not like one in particular reason. Everyone can have different reasons for why their hair loss is happening. Um, and no, if you're not looking for the underlying root cause, some hair, you know, product probably is not going to be your answer. Um, so high androgens is one of the main drivers. So androgens are male hormones, but they can drive in females if they're too high, um, oily skin, hair loss, deep voice, uh, acne. And these can like, why does this happen? Why does a female end up with high levels of androgens? So birth control, um, birth control that has a high androgen index can actually drive it. Um, coming off of an anti-androgenic birth control, such as Yasmin, um, can cause a temporary surge in androgens or like a lot of times people will go get post pill um, PCOS essentially. So when you come off of birth control, you start to develop PCOS like drivers, insulin resistance, um, bleeding becomes different. You sometimes lose periods. So one of the common things that goes along with PCOS is like infrequent periods. Um, you might get like, I think it's four or less per year is what 
is associated with PCOS. And again, yeah, there's multiple different types of PCOS. Um, Chronic inflammation, uh, testosterone dominance of menopause. So when you, fun fact, guys, females actually have more testosterone than they do estrogen and progesterone. So testosterone is measured in a different measurement unit than estrogen and progesterone. So it seems as if it's lower, but it's actually a higher level of hormone within your system than you do have estrogen and progesterone. So just a little fun fact. But when you go through menopause, your estrogen and progesterone levels drop to basically just being produced from um, your estrogen, just being produced from your adrenals. So you have very, very low levels of those hormones after menopause. And so in turn, testosterone becomes the dominant hormone just naturally. And so for a lot of women, this can result in some people talk about post-menopause, like you start to look like your partner, your partner starts to look like you because men, when they lose testosterone, start to get boobs. They start to get love handles. They start to get all those things. Females, when they have high testosterone compared start to get more broad shoulders. Um, they start to get flatter chest and, you know, beer quote unquote bellies. So there's a lot of strange things that happen as we age. Um, you can also see with high androgens like mustache or mm -hmm. dark, you know, very coarse hair on your chin or your, uh, like the sideburns essentially. Yep. Yep. And then an elevated prolactin, which increases the adrenal androgen DHEAS, um, and upregulates the five alpha reductase enzyme, which can cause more activation of testosterone to DHT. So some sciencey hormone talk there, but basically that is what drives high androgens in females. And like I said, if you have hair loss, I would also look to, do you have acne, oily skin? You know, do you have hair growth in other areas like the face? Um, and that can typically be the indicator that your hair loss is a little bit more driven by the high androgens. Yeah. And again, just a friendly reminder, I think it's important to evaluate, uh, you know, how much hair you're losing. If you're getting bald spots, obviously that's very prevalent, but I was sharing, you know, as I already mentioned in some other podcasts, losing about 150 to 200 strands per day. And one of our other practitioner friends reached out and um, she has Hashimoto's as well. And she's like, one of the things that my hairstylist had me do was actually collect my hair each day and put it into a ball. And then every six weeks, they would kind of evaluate if she was losing more or less hair, um, which was kind of interesting to do. Seems like a lot of work. <laughs> that does seem like a lot of work because I will tell you guys, uh, I shed like crazy. My hair is everywhere. My son will tell you my hair is everywhere. My husband, it drives him nuts. <laughs> this morning, he's like, how is your hair in the freezer? It's like, <laughs> I don't know. I just lose hair. It's everywhere. Um, but there's other things here that can impact it too. So again, blood sugar uh, dysregulation. So if we are insulin resistant, um, you know, this is something that you may want to look at because again, if you're insulin resistant, there's something happening at the cellular level that's, you know, causing you not to be uh, absorbing the nutrients that you're consuming, or you're just not consuming nutrients because you're consuming a lot of processed carbohydrates and, you know, poor quality food. Uh, but that can cause a lack of uh, growth with your hair follicles. Yep. So nutrient deficiencies. Um, this is something that Liz was kind of touching on. When you have blood sugar dysregulation, you don't necessarily... Your cells do not absorb as well the nutrients that you're consuming, um, but this can also be driven by other things. So gut health is a major thing that can drive nutrient deficiencies and in turn drive 
the hair follicles not to have the nutrients they need to develop growth. So what can cause nutrient deficiencies? Parasites um, tend to take the resources you consume in the form of food and feed off of it so you don't get those resources and nutrients. Um, Vitamin deficiencies can cause hair loss. So this is something that's kind of a catch-22. Like if you're not eating those, yes, that makes an issue. Um, If your stomach is not in a state where it's absorbing very well. So low stomach acid is definitely a situation that that can happen. Um, You will not be absorbing the food that you're eating. So you could be doing all the right things. You could be eating a diverse, healthy, whole food-based diet, exercising. But if your gut's a mess, you are probably not absorbing that food very well and the nutrients from that food. So hair loss is a very common challenge that can kind of also affect that person's self-esteem. You know, there's a a lot of different... um, Things that can drive this. Zinc deficiency is very closely related uh, to hair loss and iron as well um, because iron deficiency in premenopausal women is technically one of the main causes of hair loss. Um, So when we do not have these proper intake levels of these nutrients or if you are not having the right cofactors of these two. So like, for example, iron requires copper and those two nutrients need each other to be able to enter cells, be used by cells and be essentially resources for your body. So copper is in organ meats. (laughs) It is in a lot of things that people don't eat very much of. Um, And so a lot of times we see people that have iron deficiency anemia or low iron levels, they end up on an iron supplement and iron levels don't get better because they are not improving their gut or they are not taking in enough copper. Yeah. I want to have uh, the owner of Paleo Valley on our podcast because she has a couple of really good podcast uh, episodes out that I've listened to just talking about why they created their brand, what they put into their organ supplements. And she's basically like, I know the benefits. I cannot stomach organs. Like I just do not enjoy them. She's like for a while I was like choking them down because she was in a really, really bad place uh, with her health. Um, And so we do really like uh, their supplements. They have a blend, which is um, liver, kidney, and heart. They used to do brain and they source their brain out of New Zealand. Yes. But uh, they've stopped doing that because people are kind of getting like weird about it. But it's, it's just really important because again, if we don't have these nutrients that we need, this also impacts you know, your oxygen and oxygen is required to deliver nutrients to cells. Um, and so as Becca was talking about, like with iron deficiency, um, you know, this contributes to our hemoglobin production, which helps again, deliver nutrients, uh, and oxygen to your hair follicles. And so without enough iron, the hair doesn't grow causing progressively thinning, thinner hair. Um, and so also women with heavy periods may develop iron deficiency anemia, stay close you know, to this. If you are somebody that has really, really heavy periods, uh, you may want to supplement with iron if you are with, you know, the care of a doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, we even as practitioners do not touch iron. Um, this is something that you would work with your doctor on because you definitely don't want to be just supplementing with iron. So we have some people who come in and they're like, oh, well my iron was low. And so I started taking iron, but the doctor didn't tell me to do it. I'm like, you should not be doing that. <laughs> uh, get it from food first. So the red meat, seafood, beans, liver, uh, organ meats, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, iron toxicity is no joke. Um, it can happen actually, uh, not easily, but it can happen. It, it's, mm-hmm. you know, more capable than a lot of other nutrients and it can be, it can end up in heart failure. It can end up with a lot of scary things. So be, be smart guys. Um, so the last one that we're going to chat through today is sleep supplements. We had someone ask about sleep supplements, like, are they worth it? And the ones they, you know, started listing off melatonin, a supplement that I actually never had heard of called beam, um, which I looked up. Oh my God, 
it was $115 for a bag of powder, which included things like L-theanine and um, melatonin and reishi mushrooms and things that, sure, they're all great supplements um, that might work for you. I've had lots of people take sleep supplements, though, that have a lot of great ingredients and it ain't helping them. So what we always talk about is like your poor sleep probably isn't an L-theanine deficiency. Your poor sleep is probably much deeper rooted than that. Um, could it be a little bit of a melatonin deficiency? Absolutely. But why are you deficient in melatonin? Mm -hmm. um, look to the gut. The gut is a major producer of melatonin. And also, why, like, how and why is your sleep dysfunctional? There's different types of dysfunctional sleep. Um, there are people that struggle to fall asleep. I don't see that as commonly, but those people I tend to see a lot of times there's anxiety. They can't get their brain to stop. Um, too much blue light at night. They're working too late. They work out too late. Uh, some people don't do well eating before bedtime. And if you're eating too close to bedtime, that can kind of disrupt things. Um, and then circadian rhythm set off. Like people that struggle to fall asleep at night, I find a lot of times they don't have a very healthy circadian rhythm. They're not getting outside very much. They're not outside early and getting sunlight in their eyes. Vitamin D might be low. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's very different than not being able to stay asleep. So if you're not able to stay asleep, that's stress. What stress? Good question could be the stress on liver is burdened. And so liver detoxifies itself between, I believe, 3, 8, 3 and 4 a.m. I think is what I, it, some people say 1 to 3 a.m., 3 to 4 a.m. Chinese medicine has a very strong belief system around how different organs detoxify at different times. Um, stress from cortisol issues. So cortisol can drop at night causing, I'm sorry, <laughs> blood sugar can drop at night causing cortisol to rise and wake you up. Um, you know, different thing, food intolerances, parasites are active at night. So mm -hmm. those can sometimes wake people up, um, pain, you know, there's yeah. lots of things that can cause people to wake up at night. Yeah. And I think that, you know, for somebody who is really, really struggling with sleep, as we've kind of talked about in, you know, a recent podcast, make the investment appropriately. That $115, is that really worth it? Like, I don't think that's going to be the thing that fixes your issues. You need to get to the root cause of what's going on. Is it a parasite you need to eradicate? If it's bacteria, you know, that's causing you to have blood sugar imbalances, you know, more stress on the body, hormonal issues, liver issues, and detoxification issues, you need to get rid of those things, right? You need to fix the sh uh, fix your shit, essentially. Um, right the ship, I should say there. Um, and so instead of looking to what can I do just to temporarily help me ask the question like Becca is saying is where is this coming from? What is impacting this? I think there's a lot of things that most people don't do that they can do to support sleep, cold showers before bed, you know, wearing blue light blockers, dimming the lights in your house, turning off your computers, all those types of things are very helpful and supportive of restful sleep. But we have a lot of clients who still struggle with staying asleep and wake up, you know, and feel like they can't fall back asleep because of the activity that's happening you know, internally. And so mm -hmm. our belief is heal yourself, heal from the inside out, take care of, you know, what's going on internally instead of just trying to, you know, band-aid and keep supplementing, you know, with things. And the same thing with other things like constipation, yeah. you know, um, we see a lot of people coming in who've been taking like Miralax or, you know, motility stimulators and things like that. Those things can actually make things worse um, mm -hmm. because it's impacting their neurological functions that your body should be you know, able to do on their own. And so again, it's always asking, why is this happening? What is going on, you know, beyond this? When we see symptoms, we often see symptoms come in multiples. Like it's not just, I'm having trouble with my sleep. There's usually other things that are happening 
I have fatigue throughout the day. I feel tired or bloated after meals. Maybe bathroom is back and forth between constipation diarrhea or very soft stools, right? They're not normal formed. Um, memory, you know, brain fog, mood issues, PMS issues, these things all typically come kind of in clusters in terms of the symptoms. And so that would be the other thing that I would ask you is what else is going on besides sleep? I would track your cycle too as a female. A lot of times you can get a lot of information from when sleep seems to falter during your cycle. Like if you notice that sleep seems to be good some nights and not good other nights, evaluate that. That's something I've been looking into because I tend to be just because of training and how my training is, I tend to be low hormone levels, um, which I try really hard to avoid. But I've been noticing recently my right after ovulation, I, my sleep suffers for a couple nights. And I know that that's because my progesterone has been low lately. And so that's something I'm working to fix with liver support, gut support, getting more testing. Um, so knowing your cycle as well, um, progesterone is very important for sleep quality, especially deep and REM sleep. Um, so just something to think of if you find that your sleep is sometimes okay and other times not. Um, so that's all we got for today's Q and a. Um, so if you have any questions, guys, we always love to answer them, um, and make sure that we are talking on what you want to hear and we will be back and talk to you guys later. Thank you for listening to The Food Code. If this episode resonated with you, please share, rate, and review as this helps us reach others around the world. With that, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Love you guys.